Hello, I'm Joey Barton and welcome to The Edge, my brand new podcast series for Deezer Originals. Now most of you will know me from the football pitch and maybe occasionally from the headlines too, but I also consider myself many things, a pundit, a father, a bit of a thinker. Over the past few months I've found myself away from sport, banned from the game of love, and I've been using my time to explore something I've always been interested in, the mindset and the psychology of the game. To have the edge, as I would call it. Now to me, the idea of the edge can mean a lot of things. Being on the edge of success, the edge of failure, the edge of change. But on the edge, I feel that's where you truly find out about yourself. It's where you truly grow and prosper as an individual. And on this show, I want to explore that. To speak with the people I look up to in the worlds of performance, sport, music, politics and beyond. And to find out what living on the edge really means to them. On this week's show, I'm really excited to share a conversation with you from a true sporting legend, rugby player and World Cup winning coach, Sir Clive Woodward. From 1997 to 2004, Sir Clive's work propelled English rugby into a golden era, managing the National Rugby Union team to victory in the glorious 2003 World Cup final in Australia. For me, it was an especially inspiring time, one that helped transform the mood and culture across the whole of English sport lifting us from plucky and unlucky underdogs to international champions. It made me really believe that the British Isles could produce consistently world champions. Clive went on to write about his journey in a book titled Winning and his words detailing meticulous planning, strategy and perseverance have stuck with me ever since. I knew we needed to get him on the podcast and was really glad to get the chance to sit down with him recently. So let's begin On the Edge with Sir Clive Woodward. So, firstly, I think the main thing to talk about is what are you up to now? You know, what is arguably the greatest winning coach in, in modern history doing at this moment in time? Thanks, Joe, for those kind words. And yeah, I think my first reflection of you was when you, I got a, I don't know where you wrote about it, but you actually wrote all about my book. And I thought, Cranky, we've got a football player who I remember watching, or I still watch, write about my book, which is fantastic. What, what I'm doing now, I'm still a lot involved in sport, there's, there's two kind of two key things I do. One, we're building a, a ski academy in the south of France, an international ski academy, which is a, a kind of a, a huge thing. It's, it's a hotel, but the key thing is the international ski academy for kids from international countries, but with, with the clear aim of trying to create a, a gold medal winner in, okay. in, in skiing. Which in is, Winter Olympics. Is in Winter Olympics, okay. yeah, which is absolutely fascinating. I mean, I love all sports, I love rugby, I love football, but particularly love skiing. So is this a challenge for you, obviously, to go into a... A sport that is not the sport you played. You know, obviously you've done that with the Olympics across a multitude of sports, but to actually drill down and go, okay, we're not very good in Britain in the Winter Olympics, per se. I remember Eddie the Eagle, but I don't remember us being actually. I know there's a girl who won the skeleton, is it? Amy Williams. Amy Williams. Amy Williams won in Vancouver, Whistler, yeah. Yeah, so I know we've had a a small bit of success, but we haven't had it. You know, we're not dominant in, in the Winter Olympics. Yeah. Well, um, quite simply, you, yeah, it's not, not, not surprising. We're, we're not a winter sports country. We've got no snow. So if you're going to do yeah. it, you've got you've to take the kids to the mountains. But the key thing is educating them there. And the other key thing about the education, Joey, which I'm really kind of pleased about, well, what we're trying to do is a thing called, called blended learning, which means if you take a kid, say the kid from Liverpool, we still want them to spend about 20% of their time with their home school okay. so they don't completely cut their roots off. So it's not like boarding school? It's not like it, it is a boarding school because you go to teen and you'll stay there. But for 20% of your whole academic year, you'll be back at your home school. Okay. So if it doesn't work out for you, you've got what we call a soft landing. You, you're not suddenly just dropping them back because we still, you know, as I keep trying to explain to everyone, this is not your ability to pay, it's your ability to ski. So just like any academy, Liverpool, Chelsea, Barcelona, you get in there because you're a great football player and you only stay in there if they think you're good enough to stay in there. And the moment we don't think you're good enough, there'll be a dropout. Now, that's not really the, the way of the ski world. It's normally based on you've, you've got pretty wealthy parents or you've got um, the backing from the governing body. So we're saying, well, that, that's great. If you've got that, we'll, you can obviously pay. But what we're really looking for is talented kids really talented kids who want to ski. So how are you IDing these kids? How do you talent ID them? Well, that's the, that's the million-dollar question. If we had the answer to that, we'd all be pretty wealthy people. At the moment, we've, uh, the building will open in two years' time. 
So the actual physical building were two years' time. Currently, we've got six kids on the programme, four boys, two girls, two girls from Scotland. They're, and they're all fantastic. And at the moment, we've just chosen six kids based on what we see with our own eyes. Um, let's say our own eyes, you know, I'm working with professional ski coaches. Yeah, so these going into, like, there's one there, the Trafford Centre in Manchester, these, like, dry ski slopes. Ski slopes. But but also just watching them. A lot of a lot of British kids, you know, live in the mountains, you know, with their mums and dads are in the ski industry, they're ski instructors, they're working in hotels. So we've got a lot of British kids who actually are living out in the Alps in Italy and France and Austria. So it's just a case of them are that there is going to be a pathway here just through literally one incredibly generous benefactor who's, who's put the money behind to build this thing, there is going to be a genuine path for the best skiers to come through. And quite simply, it doesn't matter, you know, unless you can spend the majority of your youth on the slope skiing, you're not going to become Olympic champion. That's just yeah. not going to happen. So this will now be the first time this will be put in place. I mean, I think, and the guy just chose me, you know, not because I'm a great skier, but, you know, I can spot a, a rugby player. I thank you for... Um, I think you had Danny Cipriani on the day. I first saw Danny when he was 12. He played next to my son at rugby in the oratory school. I knew at 12, you look at this kid, he was amazing. It wasn't any, you know, you didn't have to be a genius to see how good he was. We were already taken on our first ski instructor as a French guy, okay, Alex, and he's fantastic. So we'll spot the talent, but the talent identification is a hugely interesting area to me of how you really can spot talent and why, why do some kids who are hugely talented at a young age fail mm. and why do other kids who maybe aren't so talented go on to great things in all sports you know there's no there's no immediate kind of uh, plan for this or there's no kind of um, there's no blueprint for this that's what i'm trying to say it's, it's a real yeah. subjective thought and we're trying to kind of cross as many t's and dots as many i's to try and reduce to make sure we get this talent right at a very young age well well i'm just thinking now as you talk I've got delhi ali there who's gone kind of lower leagues played at milton keynes you know, everybody's missed him. Everybody's even passed up on him as he's amalgamating games, even in the league. You know, he's played 60, 70, 80 games before yeah. scouts start, you know, circling around him. And his partner, Harry Kane, is somebody who, this time five years ago, he was coming on in the last five minutes as a substitute for Leighton Orient, who obviously they were still in the league then. Yeah. You know, they've now dropped out of the Football League. If experts, these so-called experts, even myself, I remember speaking to you about it last time, you know, at 14, I'm told I'm not big enough. Yeah. I think it was me, Leighton Baines, Phil Jagielker, who were part of the same cull. So these are the so-called experts out there. So there's, it, Joey, there's, there's no doubt of, of um, the, the one thing that happened to me. There's definitely a commonality. There's somewhere, somewhere in your life someone says you're not good enough, you're not big enough, you're not strong enough, you're not good enough, you're not talented enough. And for a lot of people, that's the biggest spur they need. But it's it's not been a bed of roses. Someone at some stage says, you're not going to make it. And it's amazing how some kids react totally positively and some kids just fall fall away. And if you fall away, you probably aren't good enough, if I'm brutally honest. So there's nothing wrong with getting setbacks. It's how you handle those setbacks. And the kind of the word I love best out of all this is attitude. Can you find kids with the right attitude? And you've got to define, what do you mean by attitude? What does attitude really mean? And it might be different different cultures and different sports even attitude maybe different in football rugby cricket or different in sort of america china india the, the you have to define what this actually means but you know the the ability to spot talent because let's face it all professional sports are chasing talent now and it's getting younger and younger and younger so you're trying to find these talented kids and get them into your sport i've just happened to fall into skiing Well, last time I spoke to you, you had the coaching software and we were yeah. doing, I remember coming in and looking at it and it was more kind of golf focused mm. so people could send the videos in, upload them. So clearly it's something that elite level well, the coaching sport soft, or the mindset the, 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 is... The coaching software is a thing called Hive Learning. It's, it's any sport and that was just purely based on how I coached the rugby team. I put a huge stall when I was coaching England on... First of all, one on one coaching in terms of, you know, it's a team game, rugby like football, but it's still one on one. You're trying to make every player individually the best in the world. But then you get the team stuff together when you really are working as a team. So it's how that team learns together, how they collaborate together. So the software is going really well in the sporting world, no matter what, whether it's golf, football, rugby, it's totally, we do it in skiing. Now I'm using the software for skiing, it doesn't make any difference. The listener might know what ProZone is. So for ProZone for us is okay. it allows us the ability pretty much to pick up any mainly in football it's used for distance covered high speed running but it also gives you the ability to to go back and look over clips to go back and look over uh, certain f- patterns of play from a game the biggest thing the biggest thing for your listeners if you can imagine you've got the, the game on TV if you can imagine just looking down on the pitch 
you see the heads of all 22 players and the referee and you see the movement and you really do see the movement you can start to measure the movement but you get incredible data how would you apply that to skiing somebody how would you capture the footage of it first we'll break down skiing into some component parts or some topics so in, in rugby, I had seven distinct areas. In football, when I was working at Southampton, I broke football down to 10 areas. In skiing, we're going down to six areas. So, you, so you've got your headline news, you know, into your headline topics. Then you try and break them down again. You try and break them down into as much smaller detail as you can. They're quite simple. You start to study them. So you start to study this part of what the, the, the sport is. You really start, I mean, really study it. You start to capture information and knowledge about what this actually is. So this is what I call the what. You study it. But most importantly, you get other people's views and ideas. What do you think it is? What do you think it is? So it's not just your kind of thoughts about what this thing is. Once you know the what I call the what, you then study it and try, okay, out of all this thing, we know what this is. I've used football. Corners. Yeah. That's really, you know, one of your big topics is corners. You know, in, in skiing. It's a huge it's, part of the game. It's a ski, in skiing, it'll be things like centering and pivoting. But let's talk about okay. football. So corners is the same as that. So there's your topic. You then really study it, and I mean really study it, capture it from videos, from notes, from dying, everything. You study corners in every aspect. And then you start to then say, what are the key points? So let's say we're defending corners. So you've probably got attacking corners and yeah. obviously defending corners. So when we're defending corners, what are the absolutely key things we must get right? And th- this isn't straight, straightforward. You, you study them. You may have six key points. So if we study corners, Joe, you and me coaching whoever, Queen's Park Range or Burnley, we're going to really study this, and we'll come up with a number of things. It may be one, it may be five or six. Say in corners, there's six key points. What I want to know is what are the six key points? They're the things you share with your team, not all the what stuff, because that's massive amount of fame. That's for the coach to spend his or her time really understanding. What I want to share with the team is six key points and get that into everyone's head. If we do these six key points right, we'll defend fine from corners. So once you've got your key points or your key coaching points, the third part of the process is, okay, if we know these are absolute key, how do you do them really well? How do we coach this? How do you do this in anything we do, obviously on the training paddock, individually, in the gyms? What are we trying to do to make sure we do these six key points better than anybody else? So you see where we're getting to. Yeah. And then the fourth part is, can we measure this? Can we really start to measure this? So you gave you magic. So it was what I call the what, why, how, how well. So this is what we do. This is corners. This is what it is. The key points when we're defending it are bang, bang, bang. Very simple, six key points. How do we practice? How do we practice this? I mean, really practice it properly. How do we get world-class of these six key points? Then how do you measure it? So it's what I call what, why, how, how well. So those four key things, how I've always coached. It doesn't matter where you're coaching football, coaching rugby, coaching anything. Business, skiing, golf, that's how I work. And it allows you to real drag down the detail. And the secret to it, Joe, if there's a secret, is to get the player totally involved. Mm. So if I'm coaching you... Giving them accountability, yeah. I want you giving me feedback. Have you yeah. thought about this? Have you thought about that? Then you know you're doing a good job. When you, as a player, come up to me and say, How about, what about this? What about this? What about this? If it's all one way from the coach, it doesn't work. Yeah. And, and in my year in football, that's what I saw just too much of, that it was just too much one way, where it's all coming from the coaches, the players sat there, cross legs, arm folded, not inputting at all, not really understanding what was going on. Obviously, we have kind of mutual crossover in terms of that that experience kind of worked with and for similar people in that domain and I can understand the concern of certain people about us oh, information overload can they deal with it and I always think in football certainly what I felt was I, I was I was having a bit of a just after I met you actually kind of forced me I'd met with Steve Black in the morning mm. and did the interview with you in the afternoon it was a really seismic day for me in terms of mindset <laughs> really really was but I mean Blackie really got after me for the first time and, and kind of challenged me to say well he, I remember him asking the, saying to me do you think you can get better and I kind of went mm, you know I'm 29 coming up to 30 it was kind of you know start reading that you're, you're getting in this veteran stage because we as footballers go from being 29 in the peak of your career to 30 and it's but, wow. but Joe, Joey this this kind of um what do you call it? information overload? The, the, the people, in my experience, who say this is information overload are the people who can't coach. Yeah. If I load you with loads of information in a short period of time, it's totally information overload. I'd never do that. This is all about just drip feeding in week by week by week by week. So you bring through a whole process. You bring a kid in here and overload them with mass stuff. It takes com- them on the gym they'll, and they'll do the completely same. fail. Yeah. 
if you drip feed it in and I mean really drip feed it in and just go back to our corner kind of analogy if, if you as a professional player you as a 10 year old kid can't understand six key points from corners we've got a real problem well yeah you know, and so I'm, it's not I, information overload it's them really understanding I, I, I understand I agree these. with you how do you get better I, so I completely agree with you it's the people who say information overload it's guys who don't like coaching or can't coach but no. what I found out it, it, it was it was more certainly when I had you know, I remember going through a scenario of Rosa out in my book when I went into the coach's office and was intact and saying, This is kind of how we've got to go. It was with Harry at QPR, and I was saying, Look, we've got a plan for we've got 11 men on the pitch. What happens if we go down to 10 men? It's a two legged game. What happens? Oh, no, 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 no. Don't put that in anyone's head. We don't want any, that anyone. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, this is a, this is a scenario that could happen. What happens if they go down to ten? No, 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 no. Let's not. Don't talk about that. We don't want to kind of jinx that someone will get. And I'm like, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the NFL, and obviously I see, I, I watch the programs. Luckily, we get a lot of good TV from them in, in terms of school of hard knocks. Uh, I think it's hard knocks, where they take them on the preseason camp, and you'd have the America's game where it shows you the backgrounds of the Super Bowl winners. And when you see the amount of meetings and the amount of information and schemes and, and systems and structures that those, you know, mammoths of guys really have to take on board. I just find the better the player, the more they want to be involved in it. You know, you challenge me in terms of kind of thinking about the game. Blackie had, had almost <laughs> shook me to the core with what he said to me. I was like, he, he's absolutely spot on. And I outsourced a functional movement coach. I went over to um, to Twickenham, to St. Mary's University in Twickenham, and met with a guy called Jonathan Griffin, who's a functional movement coach, very much a rugby background, you know, amateur rugby, and did some work with him. And whilst I was in there, there was a, a load of athletes in there, Olympic and Paralympic athletes, but also there was the women's rugby sevens side that were using the facility. And what struck me about it was in football, I outsourced, so I used to go and train Monday after training with, with them on a Wednesday on a day off. And nobody really asked me, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? You know, they, they didn't really, as long as it wasn't impacting on my training performance, they didn't care. And what I slowly started to realise was with an Olympic culture, or even in a rugby culture maybe, I don't you, you'll be able to handle this better, they would go to the coach and say, I want to get better, how do I get better? We're in a football culture, They'd wait for the coach to say, I need you to run there to there. They would never ask. They'd go, OK, I've done enough because the coach has said. And the more and more I, th- I thought about it, I remember talking to Alan Smith, who was at Newcastle with me, and we spoke about Cristiano Ronaldo, and he said he, he is constantly, what can I do, what Isn't can I do, Isn't this changing, Jolie, with Pep Guardiola and these guys coming in? I mean, surely See, I, I, they must be. I, I don't think it's changing. I think Pep is, from what I gather, Pep's demanding that your body fat be at a certain level or you don't play. Pep's de- demanding that the training intensity be at a certain level that, that they won't play. He's also, if you noticed, he's cut away everybody, bar and probably Yaya Torre, who is capable of a physical output. So you've seen Zabaleta go, you've seen Nasri go. I personally think that he doesn't want Aguero. Sounds bizarre to say that in its heart, but I don't think he suits. I watch City on Saturday without Aguero and he's on the bench and they're a better team. They're a more Pep team with him not playing. I think Aguero's they were good though, weren't they? Oh, they're phenomenal. <laughs> but, but Aguero doesn't have the habit because it's, yeah. he, he's got better. If you look at him and you look at Kevin De Bruyne, what's changed drastically on them is the physical appearance. You can see the body fat levels are down. He expects the striker to be the first line of defence. You know, you're involved in all phases of play. And I think Aguero wants to score goals. You've seen Aguero pass for the first time in the box a couple of weeks ago, which was never his never nature. Happened, no. So it shows that Sergio wants to be a part of it and is in adjusting. But I think what hurt them last year was Aguero, such a good player, but Pep's got his way of playing. And football is changing, you're right, but we're, we're still, well, when you delved into football, I remember speaking about that to you last time, there was a, or I sensed the frustration about you could see the opportunity for improvement everywhere and yet people didn't want to embrace it. To be fair, I loved my year in football and I was about to become a manager. I had two job offers, lower down the league, I want to start down the bottom. Then I got offered this job with the uh, Olympics, which kind of uh, just changed things a wee bit. So I, I still... Would you like to manage in football? Oh, totally. There's nothing I saw in football that I didn't really love and enjoy, even the even the sort of the downside with the media and the fans and all that sort of stuff. No, I, I just saw it was fantastic. And my year in Southampton was... I mean, how red that to me was fantastic. I mean, you know... 
So what I like about Harry, he allowed me to sit like this opposite him for six months. I saw everything, warts and all, and it was fantastic. And I learned, uh, I learned and that was all my whole idea, whole idea was going to football for a year, just behind the scenes. I wasn't in charge. I mean, I have to be in charge. I want to be in charge of a team, but I yeah, spent my leader, year. Yeah. I wanted to be in charge, and and but I was never going to be manager of Southampton. I was just going to learn for a year. And the chairman there gave me a year. I had uh, George Burley was there, so I worked with George Burley, Harry Redknapp, uh, Steve Wigley was, was the first guy. And it was fantastic. So I, I, there's nothing I saw that was surprised. Like working in skiing, there's nothing I saw that surprised me. What surprised me was just no one could see it. You know, how, how can you coach football when you when you're a rugby coach? Can I say, hang on, you know. It's like saying I'm a I'm a PE teacher. My background's phys ed teacher. It's like saying you cannot coach football at school or football. Some, sometimes you can be too close to it. It sounds it's, bizarre it's just, to say and, that. And I just think the reason football's the world's biggest game because fundamentally it's a simple game. It's a simple game, and that's why I just you know everybody it's got strong views. So if, if you've got strong views as a fan, which is great, why can't you have a strong? Why, why can't you coach different different sports? And I was going to do it. I mean, no bones about it. I loved every every minute. People couldn't quite understand it, and they still can't. Because you, really you played weird. football. As a young, you played yeah, football and play, rugby. I didn't play football. No, rugby was fourteen. I but you football. love football. I love football. I'm. I mean, Chelsea season ticket holder. I've got four season tickets down there. I go to most games. So Alex Ferguson, I think, he obviously famously fell out with Roy Keane at the end, and it's it's playing its way out in in each other's book at the minute, which is, I think is a bit sad for the legacy yeah. because clearly they were, you know, they were very very good for each other at one point, and sad to see. But he did say he regretted the Yapstam. You think he, he ended up selling Yapstam to Lazio off the back of something that was said in Yapstam's book. Have you ever fell out with a player? And then, as a manager, is it difficult? You know, so say for instance, Alex Ferguson, you, you fall out with Yapstam, as it seems Conte has done with Costa. Costa goes to Brazil. At that point, as a manager, are you going, OK, I've got to stick to me position here I can't be seen to back you know, down it happened to me there's, um, we we had some fairly let's say rules some strict ways of operating and it now, it now sounds strange but there is nothing worse as a manager if you read one of your players to me you know portraying the dressing room because the dressing room is not a perfect place yeah. you know, you've got to make it clear and I made it clear to all my players that when I'm in a team room or in a changing room I want to be myself you, if we wanted to win I need to be myself you know, within reason, I want to say what I want to say. You've got to be careful. You can't, you know, you, you can't say something that's that's kind of wrong, but I want to be able to be myself. But what I don't want to do is have to read about it in the next day's newspaper or in a book in two or three years' time. And by the way, that's how I want you to be as well. And, you know... Yeah, there's certain I, things that are sacred in this. And, 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 and if we're really, really serious about being the best team in the world and beating the All Blacks, the Africans and Australians and all these guys, that's how we have to operate. Then after the first World Cup... In '97, which which wasn't great, and you know people trying to get me fired and all this stuff. One player, Richard Cockrell, who's you know I'll, I'll talk about and say he wrote a book about the World Cup. And I read this book straight afterwards. I was livid because I'm thinking, hang on, we just played a World Cup. What this guy's been doing is spending half his time writing his book during the World Cup because it came out almost immediately. He was quite critical about me. He called me a bully because of some of the stuff I was doing. I've just and he, he had to go because that was the team. So he went. Part of me was a little bit pleased because you gave me the opportunity to actually make everyone clear what I was going to do. Yeah. And he went. And it was very strange because all those years later, and he never played for England again. The book was pretty average, if, and I'll say that if he was sitting here now. But all those years later, I'm on the board of Leicester Tigers, and he applied for the coaching role there. So he thought, and he said to me since, I thought I had no chance because of, you know, we, we fell out. Yeah. But no, I just said, Richard, you, you learned a huge lesson. I, and I, I put him in. I was absolutely, because I think he was the he was right the best player. man with the job. And he did a great job. He did an absolutely great job. And the number of times we've met since, over a cup of tea or a beer, he, he said, yeah, I fully understand now why you fell out with me. Because as a coach, yeah, players can say stuff. We've had this stuff, I don't know if you follow this, with Warren Gatland. He yeah, came back from a yeah, pretty good Sean Lions tour. And yeah. Sean O'Brien yeah. has yeah. come out and critical. And Gatland's come out going, I never want to coach the Lions again. And make no bones about it how really upset and hurtful this comment by one player was. Now, from the outside, you're looking at, oh, come on, you should be able to take that one player saying one thing. It's not. When you're involved in it and you're the man in charge and you've been let down by one of your players, as, as Gatlin says, he threw everything at that tour. So there's all these other coaches. And, and he got absolutely mullered by mullied. his own press as well, I was, the, I was, the New Zealand press. I was, I was out then. He got mullered by the Kiwi press. And he's come out and said, I never want to do it again. So... You know, I just think Sean O'Brien, who is a great player, and, you know, I just have him a team tomorrow, just 
Why? Why would you want to just ruin that? Uh, was he writing a book or something like that? He, he, he's now saying it was taken out of context. But to say they should have won the Test Series 3-0 if the coaching team had been better, that would hurt me to the core. Well, that's and, about the biggest insult you can get as a coach, isn't it? it You'd is, almost rather them get personal with you and it's, say... It's, and I, he's come out there and said, I don't want to coach Lions again. And, it, and it, if I was um, Sean O'Brien, I wouldn't be feeling very good about myself, as he, wherever he is now. It was just uh, disappointing from... I can imagine, yeah. Well, well, that brings me on because I remember, obviously, mad keen Lions fan. I was out in New Zealand. I went down with a group of my mates for three weeks when you were Lions coach. So the last time it was in New Zealand, which was, for me, a cultural sporting experience to see how, obviously, how the British and Irish fans travelled in the droves out there. It's incredible to see, but also to see how important rugby is to the fabric of, of New Zealand, how it is, you know, you think we think we're a sporting country and we've got lots of sports, but until you go down there and see their passion for rugby, the way the whole school system, the way the whole, basically every man and the dog is aligned for the All Blacks and the All Blacks being the absolute pinnacle of, of their sport and greatness and also everything cascades down from it. So everything else is geared for the All Blacks to do well, whereas in... In England, certainly in in football, soccer terms, a big bone of contention for me at, at this moment in time is the fact that the Premier League is sits way above yeah. um, the England national team. Obviously, y- you're getting a bit of a... F- obviously, the RFU in England still at the top of the international game, but you're now getting the rise of, the, of club rugby. Do you think that'll impact on or start to impact on the power of international rugby? In, in rugby union, international rugby is still the absolutely pinnacle. I think what will happen is happening now. Players from not so wealthy nations outside of England will be signing contracts with uh, Premiership rugby clubs that says you know you can't play international rugby. Now that is a really interesting scenario when that happens. But if you're uh, a rugby uh, owner of a club and you're paying a guy top dollar, you know I think you're within your rights to say, okay, well you're here to play for me. Obviously, he's synonymous with winning. Sir Clive Woodward and winning, it goes hand in hand because we haven't had a coach who's been that successful, certainly on the world scale. But what struck me was, and I always believe this is a fundamental part of, of, of learning how to win or, or learn how to do things better, was that you wasn't all through, whether it be a player going out to Australia, whether it be you know yourself coming back and coaching and then going into the England setup with the innovation that you used, but you also wasn't scared to fail. You were prepared to fail to get better, to, yeah. to, to test your theories and get better. Totally. I just got, I just got no if only. You know, with, uh, there's nothing wrong with losing. You know, there's nothing wrong with losing as long as you've done everything you possibly humanly can to win. If you can look in the mirror and go, "There's everything I've possibly done. I've, I've not bottled any decision. I've not said, oh, okay, well, let's not do that. It's a bit risky.'" And it's just planning the whole thing out. When you lose, you, you can learn as well. You, you can win. When you lose, you've got to learn. And you know, my, my career and everything I've done has never gone in a straight line. Mm. We've got there eventually, and on the way, you've had big setbacks and losses. It's how you handle that and how you learn through that process is, is I think, the key to being successful. But that's where your attitude, your determination, your grit, resilience c- comes in, unless you're prepared to go through all that stuff, because you know it's not going to go in a straight line. You're going to have terrible moments. You hate that. You don't plan for it. You don't go on a line store thinking we're going to lose three zip. You go with all the right processes. But that's sports why we love it. You know, that's why we... we you we, win or you learn, don't you, really? You, you, you win or and you sometimes learn. sometimes you learn way more. Yeah, and, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it's true. But, you know, what I, I can honestly say, you know, I thought the Lions were... You know, I was down there in, in the summer. thought Gatlin did a fantastic job. You can't explain how difficult this is to take a scratch team and play against the All Blacks. Mm. So that's that's what we do. And because we've got this huge history of the Lions, that's what we do every four years. And it's normally, you know, even Gatlin, who drew the series, is copying some criticism. I just guess this is crazy. Yeah, you know, I got a, I always call it positive feedback. I got a lot of positive feedback after the Lions two thousand and five. But actually, you accept that that's part of the that's part of the thing. What you hate is when the feedback comes from your players. Yeah, yeah. I I've got the media. I think the media is absolutely every right to criticise, and that's their job. And you you take the upside and the downside. What I really don't like is when the players, and that really does hurt. Make no bones about it. That hurt you as a coach. Well, especially if you've invested everything you can. You're <laughs> saying you've left no stone unturned. You, you put everything on the line because. The easiest thing was to actually, no, I'm not going to do that. Because especially when all your kind of friends, family, the people close to you and your advisors going, don't do this, you must be crazy. And then you do it and then you get absolutely pillared. You actually, well, actually Yeah, but if you didn't do it, you'd uh, be regretting, why I didn't I go and have a go? I, and that's a really good point. If I hadn't done it, 
I'd be sitting here probably thinking, well, yeah, we we would have won. I'd have done this, this, and this. But you got to go and do it. You got to put yourself out there, and you got to be prepared to fail. Always uh, with everybody, you, there's an element of ego. You think I can do that? Yeah, Even with myself going to Rangers, I'm like, I can turn I can this round. Yeah. I can do this. It no matter what it takes. And sometimes you have to have that part of you. You know, sometimes Perfect. losing is that part of you being checked Perfect. to say, okay, you know, this is. It re-emphasizes what what is important in your culture of winning. And I, I was obviously aware of which I thought was one of the strategically a masterstroke, which was in um, the the World Cup that you won, in the fact that you took out a QC to Australia with you because you were, and everybody was like, why are you taking a QC? You were getting questioned, why are you taking a QC? Why is it going out? And it ultimately pays off because when Neil Back gets sighted, he pretty much, well, did he get him out of it? What what was the story well, was behind that? We had, we put, uh, no, the big story was we put um, 16 men on the pitch for 20 seconds, which caused... You know, we're all, we're winning by forty points. We, we we have certain team rules about not playing with. We never play with fourteen men if a guy's been you know come off injured. So we get, we got it wrong. So I just thought you'd been. And next thing we've been cited. We're in court, and this whole and they could deduct us points and all this stuff. So we had this QC with us called Richard Smith. Uh, and the, where that came from is back to football. It was I forget who who said to me. Someone said to me, Joey, just in maybe just all like this. This are, are you taking anyone from the legal side with you? I said, no. And I remember this about a year before the World Cup. And I said, well, why do you even think about that? He said, well, don't you remember Bobby Moore? I was just going to say that to you. Remember Bobby Moore when he, he got... Was it uh, 1970? Wrongly accused for shop for shoplifting or whatever. And I remember totally Bobby Moore because that was mm. my era of loving football. And I remember that completely. And I said, you're going to Australia as the team everybody wants to beat, the team everyone hates. Something's going to happen. Something will happen, whether it be a positive test or something's going to happen... And you need someone with you. And it just made total sense. So I knew about this guy, Richard Smith. And the interesting thing was, it sounds all very glamorous, but it didn't cost a penny. You know, he went to Richard Smith, who was a top, Mad top rugby QC, fan. Mad rugby fan. He said, crack, are you serious? Do, do you, do I want to come, I'll be part of your touring team. I said, I'll come for nothing. Well, he's now part of a World Cup winning team, just, yeah? Just, you pay my airfares, which I do. So he came. So I've got one of the best legal brains in the country on my team. And also what I found, which you won't be surprised, this guy's a bright young guy. He gave me so many thoughts and ideas and ideas and, you know, watch out for this or have you thought about this? Because he loved his rugby and he yeah. loved being involved. Players loved him, he fitted it. And then, of course, we needed him. And he was, and what I didn't know about all this stuff, um, and you probably know me better than me do and Joey this, but there's a real hierarchy in the kind of the legal system. There's barristers and barristers. This guy's top draw. Okay. So when you go into like a pre-meet before the kind of trial, there's a real pecking order about who's doing who's doing what. And of course, they were all like butt in the head with this guy. So we had the top, top guy. <laughs> I didn't know all this. But the other guys were telling me, it, said, oh, it was all done before the meeting. It was all, they all sorted out what was going to happen. You're going to get a hefty fine and a tap on the wrist. And that's all I wanted. What I didn't want was any points deducted. All I wanted, Pat, we'll pay a fine. We yeah, keep forward. moving forward. Just keep moving forward. And he sorted out. Speaking with somebody outside your sport, I've found certainly a lot of great ideas I've got about my own game and, yeah. and thoughts about football have come from completely outside of sport. Yeah. I think we're quite open and honest with people who aren't in our... They're not seen as a threat. Yeah. You know, if, you, if you're not talking to a football person, you're not talking to a rugby person. Yeah. Well, a question I got written down here was about uh, the English psyche to winning. You know, you suggest that sport and culture is traditionally valued just taking part and playing it, you know, the right spirit and under, you know, above the value of winning. Do you feel that we're getting better at that or do you feel like we're getting worse at learning how to win? I, I've, I've, to be honest, Joe, I'd never really think about it too much. I I just I'm hugely proud to be English. I think in English stroke British, we've got a huge history uh, in everything we've done from world wars to industry to sport. I think we've we do have this winning culture. There's, there's no doubt about it. It's just I just don't buy into any any time and says we you, you can't win. I think. Well, what, it, what about the kids getting taught in school? That there's no winner, you know. Everyone gets a medal for taking part. Yeah, I, I, again, I'm, I'm, I really I wouldn't make a big deal about that. You know, that's an education system. The, the real winners will get through all that. They'll still come out and they'll they'll know what they've got the right attitude and they'll they'll get through all that but stuff. Yeah, at, at you school, have to so. have winners and losers. And yeah. You have to you have to learn how to lose to learn. Yeah. Or to know what I, it takes I can to see win. why they put it in from an education point of view. I, I don't think it changes the kind of psyche of a player. 
going forward, you know, they'll they'll understand it's all about winning. But at that stage, I can see why education has put it in a view. I'm not saying I agree with it or not. I just I'm pretty ambivalent to it because I think you know when they when they leave school, once they leave school, even in the day they go home, and they they're going to compete then in in, in different different areas. So, but you know, I think we are we are winners. There's that feeling there. This could be a really good era again for England rugby. Are you? Optimistic as as optimistic as everybody else yeah, is. Yeah, look, I'm, I won't say Eddie's a mate, but I like Eddie Jones, and I like to think we are mates. We competed heavily with each other. Um, you beat him in the World Cup final. Beat in the World Cup final. Um, the reason that you know you you talk about guys, you just see it in his eyes. This guy's one driven, driven guy. He he never thought he'd get a second chance at winning a World Cup. For whatever reason, he got the job. So you now got a guy who lost by one drop goal to us. And did an amazing job with Australia. Then beating New Zealand in the semi-final was a huge win for them. Yeah, they lost to a very, very good England team on their own patch. On their own patch. But he's now got this chance. So you've got one driven guy. Mm. This is what I keep saying to everyone: this guy is not going to be sidetracked by anybody. He's not going to be pushed around by anybody in Premiership rugby or any player or any club or any agent. He's a completely driven guy. Yeah, this is the north star in his life. This is it. He's got a second chance, and not many of us get a second chance. He's mm. he got a second chance. So. I'm a huge fan of Eddie. I absolutely wish him well. I speak to him every now and then. And, you know, so far to me, he's 10 out of 10. I don't think he's put a foot wrong. He's got an amazing record. And he knows also he's got a good team. So mm. I'm very, very excited for English rugby. And you know, just wish him well and hope he can get the team over the line. But, you know, I just think the you know, rugby's going in the right way. And there's a lot of good teams coming through. And this England team somehow got to be that all black team. And this Saracen side, great side, didn't he? Yeah. It's a double European Cup winners. We were talking before about um, the documentary Icarus. I mean, firstly, was you as shocked by what you saw as I was? Firstly, don't ask me to spell it, because <laughs> I can say it, but I can't spell it. I just thought it was one of those... Um, someone told me to watch it, and I just started watching it, and I just found myself sitting on the edge of my seat. It was, you know, when you're involved in sport, and I was a little bit involved in the London 2012 Olympics, it was uh, an astonishing programme. And I'm just astonished it's not created more headline news. I mean, I do some work with the IOC and I've spoken to many IOC people and they've not seen it yet. So it's, uh, I, I'd recommend... Which is insane. Any, it's, 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 it's incredible because it's an incredible story of just how deep a problem can go, such as doping. And the whole thing was fascinating. And watching the film, there was people on the film I knew. There was people from the IOC who were sitting in... Dick Pounds. Some, 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 some of the judgment, the wider stuff, they yeah. were sitting in committees and it was going, crikey. So it's an astonishing story, and I'm amazed there's not been more made out of it in terms of because it, it just shows you how far. You know, and you look at doping, the other big thing, the, the IOC's betting, the, the depth that can go to without anyone actually realising what's going on, and the Olympics isn't, is totally open to all those areas as well. So, so it was huge. So it, it, I'm, I'm agreeing it was an amazing film. I'm amazed. I mean, it must, you, you obviously, the athletes that you were working with in 2012, obviously been competing against athletes who... Or Russian athletes, it seems, who were, you know, on a state-sponsored yeah. doping program. Uh, I'm the same as yours, kind of scratching my head, like how, how has this gone on? That my sceptical brain also flips to, well, surely some of our athletes, some of the UK and American athletes, were beating these doped athletes. You know, I'm not asking you to comment on this, but it just makes me really sceptical about what we see. And it's sad that in terms of, you know, Team Sky's achievements, we've seen the kind of campaign that went on about the TUEs and the things around Sir Bradley Wiggins. And I mean, look, I don't know the depths of, of what goes on in, in other sports, but it made me question my own sport, thinking, wow, I wonder if there's people I've been playing against who've been doped. I mean, there was clearly some kind of issue in, in cycling. We've seen Lance Armstrong, although he's passed 500 or so drug tests as someone who's been in a drug testing environment before and obviously seen what happened on the Icarus documentary in terms of they were taking samples, A and B samples, and they had an, an organisation set up to tamper with them. I mean, for yourself winning the World Cup, I mean, do you ask yourself, I wonder if anybody was doping against us, does it even make your achievement more so that that could have been going on? You kind of just watch all this and you just, and the answer to the question, you hope not. And I, I just think you've got to just hope that the, the IOC, the authorities, WADA, are doing everything humanly possible to, to fight it. We want clean sport. 
with the England rugby team, you know, we used to bring in testers ourselves because they're just you're doing all this amazing amount of work. The the only thing that could kind of scupper it was is something like that was to happen within your team. So again, it's education. I totally and utterly trusted my players, England players, every one of them, to be sensible because this can happen inadvertently. It can happen. Well, remember um, the thing with but Delalio you, you that just, was in the papers. Was well, that, that was something a little bit different. It wasn't Formers Hunting. Uh, um, he's got he's got the wrong side of the news of the world, basically. Mm. Upset but yeah, the wrong people. But yeah, you, you've, it's it's just something you, you hope not. And I, th- but I think as a coach, you, you've got to do everything humanly possible because that can cost you your dreams. Yeah, and. So, and so you, and you the just, Dave, Dave Brailsford thing, so we're obviously TUEs, I don't even know, I didn't know, they, I, I know we use them in football because I've asked questions afterwards. So we've got black and white, which is completely white, no no messing about with the drugs laws, you've got people who clearly break the rules, you know, Armstrong now has come out and said he's break the rules, this documentary we've seen is dope and no danger. And then we've got a huge area in sport, which used to, which is a grey area, which was... You know, I mean, caffeine at one point was was a prohibited substance. There's certain things, cough medicine, so on and so forth, that we can't take as footballers or when I was under testing because it would, you know, uh, what was one of them? One of them was like, um, you know, like for your sinuses, for block sinuses, you couldn't inhale it because it'd be a a a positive. It's something like that, yeah, that we would inhale. So as somebody who wins in sport, are you always looking for, you clearly got to know the rules, clearly stated you've got to bring the best doctors the best advisors and you've got to get your players really involved in this they're, they're not on the outside they've yeah. got to be close to this they've got to understand what's at stake here and there's there's no room in the team for cheating this is a zero tolerance area and you wouldn't want any of them to cheat my my only issue was always if someone did something inadvertently i mean the, the example of alan baxter the skier who took the wrong i think it was a vic nasal spray and Salt Lake City was a nasal spray that I believe was allowed in the UK. In America, it was slightly different, and he he failed. Which is a mistake. He failed a test, but he he lost everything. everything. What about Sharapova? He lost everything. So again, I'm not close enough to it, but yeah. it, could, it could be the same thing. All, all he's saying is, is you know, I'm just very very clear about this. Speaking to any coach, athlete, there's zero tolerance on this. Would you ban and, them? Anyone who's failed a drug test, lifetime ban? No, I, I believe in lifetime ban. If an athlete had absolutely knowingly cheated. I think that's the one thing athletics may have got slightly wrong. Yeah, if they've known and they admit it, I cheated, then you, you've got to look at them and say, come on. And a lifetime ban is one of the things. To actually just ban them for a couple of years and let them come back, I think that stuff. If, if somebody's, like the Gatlin, Justin Gatlin. If, some, if someone had done something you know, inadvertently and that was proved that, you, I think there's got to be some, some leeway on this. But I, I just come back to education and education, education, education. And the players have got to take responsibility, but you want medical advice around you that's absolutely banging the drum, banging the drum, banging the drum. But, but that was the thing that struck me about it, watching the Icarus documentary. And then, obviously, the follow-up, you end up in a kind of wormhole on the internet because you're looking at all different things. And I found, you know, I've been watching, a, seeing the Lance Armstrong stuff, seeing the Victor Conti stuff for the Balco Labs, which is, I mean, mind-boggling when he goes into what had gone on with Ben Johnson or then all the athletes that spin out that. It made me incredibly sceptical about I'm like... Wow, the Olympics is a, you know, and as somebody's work with it, I mean, you just hope not. I just look at my sport, rugby union, and it's a power game, and you, and you just really trying to trust the coaches, the the medical teams, and all the players to just to keep it a clean sport. You know, there's there's, there's no guarantees, but you're doing everything humanly possible. I, I just believe the testing's good, and you want as much testing as possible. The thing about testing is expensive. It's not a cheap process to go around drug testing people. Well, the thing you learn about the testing in this is it's actually completely. You know, the, according to the Russian guy who was doing the testing out there, it was like, well, you should just throw one under the bus every now and again. Yeah, it's just interesting to get your take on it because, you know, you've won a World Cup and I'm worked in the Olympics. So, to, you know, to, just to ask someone a question, I haven't had anyone on record talking about it. Right, so I've never been involved in a positive test. So I've never been in, you know, in, involved in having someone tested positive. So uh, because we, I, I promise you, we did loads and loads and loads right down to, you know, having a QC with us just in case something was to happen because you, you, you just... Would be very disappointed any player who's. who's it was like a massive fan of rugby league, and to see the young lad miss out on the grand final because he'd had a positive drug test. I'm like, <laughs> firstly, yeah, I don't know, I don't know what happens. And secondly, just sad to see for him to miss the biggest moment, and he's going to get a ban for that. Is sad. Usually finish with some quick fire questions. So, firstly, what is your idea of happiness? 
happiness is uh, home with the family. Straightforward enough. And what is your idea of misery? What gets you down? Uh, just losing. I mean, <laughs> losing is it affects you until your next game. It's 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 part of your your DNA. And if if you're not like that, you, you shouldn't be in that job. It's uh, losing is something I find it hard to cope with. Which person do you admire most, and why do you admire them? I admire Jason Robinson hugely, just for what he did for the England rugby team, where he came from, tough background, and yeah, I admire him hugely because he was just a delight to work with. Phenomenal player as well. Huge player, but just a great guy to work with. Yeah, he used to do all the stuff with the homeless and the soup kitchens yeah, and stuff like does, that. Still, still does, does that, yeah. Amazing guy. I've seen a documentary about him on TV the other day, and he still looks like he could play. He could, incredible guy, <laughs> great athlete. Uh, what is your favourite book? Why is it your favourite? You can choose one non-fiction, one fiction if you want. This is a bit bizarre. There's, there's a book out there called Building the Happiness Centre Business by a guy called Dr Paddy Lund, who's a, a dentist. If you read this, it's just it's how a dentist completely transformed a dental practice. Building a happiness centre? So, building a happiness centre business happiness. by Dr Paddy Lund, L-U-N-D. And he just, his book's so simple. You read this. And some of his thoughts of ideas are how he completely transformed his dental practice in Australia. Uh, you read it, though, how... You know, basically, I love to give this to athletes and coaches because I look at a dentist, just by starting to really think a bit differently, can completely change the way you run dental practice. What we're about to do in rugby or football or golf isn't that challenging. If you really think about it, but let's chuck out all the traditional ways of doing stuff. And he's now incredibly successful, runs a very happy business, and it's a, it's a brilliant book. What is your favourite film and what is so good about the film? Favourite film? Probably, if I'm really honest, The Battle of Britain. My dad was in the Air Force, he was a pilot in the Air Force. So I remember going to see The Battle of Britain when it came out with him. And I can just see, almost feel the vibes in his body. I was watching this. It's a hugely proud moment of our whole history. So it's one of my favourite films. Closely aligned with probably Top Gun. So I've got to do an Air Force. Oh, I it's plane flying there. Yeah. Your favourite song or piece of music and why is it your favourite? There's a song by Eminem, and I forget the title of it, but it's um, One Shot, One Lost Opportunity. Is that Lose Yourself? Yeah, Lose Yourself. Yeah, some of that. great it, it's, uh, uh, I played that before one of the games. you got One Shot, One Opportunity by Eminem, and it, I just think it's one time I played a bit of music with some f footage to the players. It just made a massive difference because it was before we played Ireland in the Grand Sam game, and I just made it I really... Took a not not a risk. I just you know this was before the World Cup. It was the the Grand Slam in two thousand and three, and I basically said you know I've got one shot, one opportunity, and if we've got any any ambitions winning the World Cup, we've got to win this game tomorrow. So it was the opposite of what most coaches are, but huge pressure on them. If you even think that we can not go out and batter this team tomorrow, we've got any chance of the World Cup. So you've got one shot, one opportunity, and there's like silence in the room. And yeah, music and massive. Sometimes. I love me. I love music yeah. and with sports, and we had music on the bus on the way to the. The change it was like choreographed, Joey. It was fantastic, but that's the one shot that kind of still, kind of when I hear it, I go, "Whoa!" I never forget that team meeting. So that piece of music even now takes you back to that. Took that one meeting Friday. Yeah, it's great, Friday night, it? seven o'clock. Played it to three or four minutes of footage of England playing well, and but I just put it right on them. And many players have said since you're the only, <laughs> only you know people to uh, taking pressure off your team. I just put massive pressure on them, and I think real champion people love pressure. And that team I had, Johnson. Responsibility, yeah. yeah. Johnson, these guys, they just loved to be put in corners and they thrived in the pressure. What's your favourite meal and can you cook? Hopeless cook, just <laughs> never even think about cooking. That's why we have restaurants and takeaways. I believe in supporting the economy. <laughs> Letting the experts do them. When it comes to cooking. Um, but my kids love it when my wife goes away because it means we just go out and eat all the time. <laughs> so there's no washing up. It's very easy. My favourite meal, and I had five wonderful years in, in Australia. I really learned to love kind of fish. and So I'm very much a, a fish eater and sort of a prawns and that sort of stuff. So that's my kind of... Seafood? Seafood food is my definitely my favourite for the... This is... This is always find this one a tough question to ask people. A fantasy dinner party and there's six people at the table, so it's you and five others. I've had very, some wild answers to this. Again, it probably shows my love of football. You know, I'd be very predictable. I'd, I'd love a few of those guys from the 66 World Cup team. So Bobby um, Moore then? I'd love the late Bobby Moore to be there. Bobby Moore was absolutely icon of me, so Bobby Moore would certainly be there. 
I'd love the coach to be there. Ralph Ramsey. Alf Ramsey. Alf Ramsey would definitely be there from from that era. I, I would definitely have Ferguson there. Alex. He mightn't like that. Just being a Scotsman and England World Cup winners just, all around. Just to wind it up, I'd definitely have Roy Keane sitting next to Alex. <laughs> so just, <laughs> just to he really, might get a dessert. Yeah, just to probably won't get the starter, but we would. Um, Again, it's players you admire. I mean, not saying because you admired you, certainly admired Roy Keane because you just had this thing about him. You're just tough, but you still just. I think he was the. I was really disappointed. Would you like to have managed Roy Keane? Yeah, I'd love, I'd, I was really disappointed in the McElroy Keane spat recently. I didn't where did that all come from? And suddenly I don't saw Roy McElroy saying he he didn't really like Roy Keane. I said, where did that come from? I mean, and then my my other big love is outside of um, sort of football. Rugby, I, I'd be used to having all the rugby team around, so I wouldn't have any rugby players because they've all been around. It'd, it'd probably be golfers, you know. I'd probably Ballesteros would certainly be there. So I'd can't put, complain with that. Put Seve, Seve in there. Seve in there. Get him in the back garden, showing him a few different. Yeah, shots. getting his. How many is that? Are we up to that's f- it. You're done. Yeah, that's a good table. You got Bobby Moore, Sir Alf Ramsey, Sir Alex Ferguson, Roy Keane, Seve Ballesteros, and I'd probably someone like Victoria Pendleton. You've got no more space, that's it. Well, I'd squeeze You're gonna them You're going to have around. to get rid of someone off. Certainly, maybe Rebecca Adlington, Victoria Pendleton. Some of the some of the ladies who won gold in London were fantastic. They were Paula Radcliffe. Paula Radcliffe. These sort of people would be great to be there. But I'd certainly put Keane with Ferguson with me. Right. Last but not least, what is your favourite quote? I never lose. I either win or learn. That's what I was trying to say, Jim. And you. The guy I got out is a Nelson Mandela. I never lose, I either win or learn. I think that's fantastic. If you get that across to kids, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with losing. You know, either win if or you learn. If you learn from it. Like you learn from it, yeah. You either win or you, or you learn. I think that's a great, great quote. Very I have no clue it was, but the, this guy put it down to Mandela. We'll have Ma- Mandela can have it. We'll give it Mandela. We'll give it to Nelson. Yeah. That would be a, a great, great uh, quote. So on that inspiring note, I want to say thanks for contributing to my uh, series of podcasts. It's an absolute privilege to spend time and just uh, converse with you. I'm Joey Barton and I've been at the edge with Sir Clive Woodward. You've been listening to the Edge podcast and thanks again to Sir Clive Woodward there. I mean, a World Cup winning coach. There's not many of them about in this country. And also he shows his skills and how his mind and his, his strategies can work across multiple sports. A truly remarkable man and, and leader, in my opinion. So let me know what you think by tweeting the usual, at These Are UK and at Joey7Barton. If you want to hear more from our conversation, you can find some exclusive bits over at Deezer.com or via the Deezer app. I'll be back next week. So make sure you hit the subscribe button. But until then, from me, Joey Barton, thanks and goodbye. Deezer. Deezer. Originals.